From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. This week, the campaign for the voice referendum passed another milestone with the release of the yes and no cases that will be sent to voters in the official pamphlet were released. We didn't learn a lot from the cases. The arguments are pretty well rehearsed by now, but they've provided grist as the debate rolls on. This week also saw news poll with a message that a number of other polls have sent, and that is that the Yes case has an uphill battle ahead. We'll visit The Voice in a number of podcasts in the run-up to the vote, which will be in the last quarter of the year. Today, we speak with two Indigenous Senators, Dorinda Cox from the Greens and Karen Little from the Liberals, with opposing views on the issue. We start with Dorinda Cox, a strong yes advocate. Dorinda Cox, can you firstly briefly outline the three or four strongest arguments for voting yes? Um, Thanks, Michelle. I think the three very key arguments for voting yes are about recognising that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first peoples of the Australian continent. I think that for me, pays a lot of respect and homage to um, 65,000 years of culture, of tradition in this country. And its recognition is that we were the first peoples. I think that's a very key element. And, and the things that I've heard is that people agree that this is important around recognition. I think the second part of that is about listening and, you know, listening to the advice of of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from across the country, more so um, that it's sort of that concept of consultation and consent that I think gets watered down. And in my experience of public policy work, listening and being able to hear what people are saying about the solutions to issues that affect them is critical, and particularly when you are in government, but also when you're in the parliament. And as a senator, it's something that I take very seriously and is a very key function of being a senator is the ability to inquire and the ability to debate. And I think that they definitely feed into the functions of what um, we do, particularly in the Senate. Then the last part that I want to really articulate is that this is about practical application. For years and years uh, since the the abolishment of ATSIC, we've had no real key framework or scaffolding at a federal level that allows us to think practically about what those outcomes are and to bring that into our communities. We've talked a lot about um, self-determination and and the principles of that, but no one's actually doing it and no one's actually making any practical progress on, you know, if this works over in Yundamu, um, it might also work in Laverton. But how about we go and have a conversation with people or how about we bring people um, through the voice mechanism into the parliament to talk about what that looks like. So place-based solutions, practical progress, how we measure that and how we can actually provide value for money uh, through those mechanisms to make sure that we are putting money in the right places for the right outcomes. Now, you mentioned ATSIC and I covered ATSIC quite a lot as a a journalist. It ran into all sorts of problems. It had a great deal of power. Why will the voice succeed in helping deal with this practical issue of closing the gap where ATSIC wasn't able to? 
Well, I think Artseek was a boots and all concept, you know, that for me, I think Artseek gave a lot of power through commissioners and through a governance structure that essentially was was different from what's being proposed in a voice to parliament. And I think they're very clear differences. And I think that um, we need to create a legacy in this country that is about the journey to self-determination. When I think about that in a really practical way, I think ATSIC took us there very quickly. And I think that that concept of what ATSIC could provide almost was set up to fail through a very different structure that I see the voice enabling us to provide advice to all sides of parliament to talk through those representations to the executive government and to talk very specifically about what closing the gap is, how we're going to do that, how we're going to evaluate it. Um, ATSIC wasn't set up for that. It wasn't set up to review its own mechanisms. ATSIC wasn't funded to be able to provide uh, an evaluative framework um, of what's working and what's not. And I think that was part of the criticism and made it too easy for government to come in and then abolish ATSIC um, because there was no mechanism to say, these were the great things that happened under ATSIC and there were bad parts to it. And I, I think everybody knows that. But I think the model or the mechanism of the voice is a different structural piece of reform that is now required to ensure that we do close the gap. The government's committed to the whole of the Uluru Statement, and that includes treaty. Do you see the voice as a a very significant step on the way to a treaty? And do you have any aspiration for how long that would take? Yeah, I think that um, I think it's pivotal in the way that one, we need uh, recognition as part of that and recognising first peoples of a country uh, in order to establish treaty processes and. What I would say is there's also another step in there, and that's about truth-telling, um, the truth-telling process in, in a Makarata concept, um, because Makarata is about coming together after you know, disagreement or, you know, these are really critical parts. And what I've said to the government is I don't see them working in a sequential way. I see them being advanced slowly as important and pivotal parts that interweave or interconnect. And so what I would like to see is that we commence Makarata as soon as possible to make sure that we can actually advance a treaty process as we get down the track. Now, the voice to parliament is critical in that in recognising some of the key groups across the country that would seek to have a treaty with the federal government, uh, with sovereign heads. And I feel like this process will probably take the best part of a decade for us to do. And don't quote me on that, but it it just feels like there needs to be nation building. There needs to be a process of us coming together to be able to advance treaty in this country. So as you move around the country, what sort of uh, reaction are you getting about The Voice? We are seeing it slipping in the polls. We saw a news poll that uh, particularly it's struggling with people in the regions and with women. What's your impression? Look, I've got nothing but positive impressions from people in relation to Voice to Parliament. I've been out talking to Yes23 campaigners over the last couple of weeks and 
you know, interforums in regional Western Australia in particular. I was at the Yule River um, Bush meeting last week talking to people about what a voice the parliament could do. In this forum in particular, there was a call to action that was provided to both the state and federal government. They're the types of things that people are saying are really important to have representation to be able to do this on a more regular basis so that we can talk about what's working in communities. What I hope is that, you know, we start to see as part of this campaign more information being directed in the right places. And I think that what we know is that women are very time poor. I know that I am as a single mum of two girls and that we don't have a lot of time to sit down and read through a pamphlet on the yes and no case. So how are we um, reaching people and, and meeting them where they're at in relation to how we provide that information? Is that through digital form? Is it through, you know, visual storytelling? Like, well, what is that and what does it look like? So I'm hoping that campaigners will be able to engage in some of those conversations, but also to reach the people who may have questions uh, who may have some reservation about the way that they're going to vote. And I think all of this information collectively is going to provide a clearer picture for, for Australians to be able to see the merit in, uh, in what I think is voting yes in, in the upcoming referendum. Now, you're from uh, Western Australia. The voice has to get a majority of states as well as the overall majority. Do you think the West is going to be a real problem in terms of that state alone? Well, I, I, I don't think that that's going to be a problem because um, what I'm urging people to do is to find the information or seek out the information that they need to answer the questions. We are the largest or one of the largest geographical states and I think that that presents a challenge for us and the campaign. So we, you know, if you're going to do a campaign door to door and have kitchen table conversations, it's how do you reach people in such a large geographical and diverse context of what essentially is an urban, regional, rural and remote context across such a a vast area. And so, you know, that, that's the challenge that I see for our state in particular. I also see that there are many conversations happening where people are throwing up hypotheticals around what changes in legislation have happened in Western Australia and what they could mean. And I'm really cautioning people about that scaremongering. I think that that is dangerous in relation to putting these two things together. So in Western Australia, people talk directly about the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act and what that means. You know, I'm a big supporter of legislative change in this area. Uh, it's something that I um, served on the Joint Select Committee on Northern Australia for in the wake of the Jukin Caves report. And, you know, I think that this improvement in, in the legislation, what I don't want people to do is put that in the same basket as this is about a voice to parliament. We are going to work collectively with governments to improve legislation and to have legislation be reformed in particular areas. And I think that the minister has already outlined what those areas are uh, that she would like to pursue. And I think it's up to us to see this as a positive change because we need to ensure that there is equity. Dorinda Cox, thanks very much for talking with us. Karen Little, you're an Indigenous woman. Many would expect you to support The Voice. What are the main reasons you believe The Voice would be a retrograde step? 
Well, um, yes, you're right. I'm an Indigenous woman. Both my parents uh, are other people from Central Australia. So I've also grown up in a and been born and raised in a regional and even lived in remote areas. So that is how I explain my indigeneity and my with lived experience, um, community experience, and uh, and obviously through my parents. Uh, I'm also a, an Indigenous woman who's worked predominantly in the private sector, whose work has been mostly about engaging people in the economy through participation in the workplace across a range of sectors. And so that's the perspective that I come with, um, as well as an elected representative for South Australia. About And when I look at things, I look at it through the lens of what's the proposition? What is, what is the likely impact based on the evidence? Well before becoming a parliamentarian 12 months ago, I've followed this for a very, very long time and, uh, and remain stoic in my position. The no pamphlet canvasses a, a wide range of arguments against the voice. What do you think will be most potent in the community? Well, the interesting thing, um, there are a number of reasons why I think there is objection uh, to this proposition, one being the no compromise position of uh, both the voice and constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians being within the constitution. I think that is a principal issue. But there are also many others. There are uh, significant scope creep in what is understood to be this proposition. And there's often references uh, to detail and lack of detail. There is a 270-page uh, report that was done by Kalma and Langton uh, under the coalition government, which actually looked at options for consideration under an arrangement for a voice. And when you actually have a look at that, it has a range of recommendations, none of which uh, we've seen been endorsed uh, outright by the Prime Minister. In fact, my understanding is I haven't seen any endorsement of that particular report and its recommendations. I see bits and pieces, a bit of creep here and there of um, some of it we agree with, but there's no clarity really on what this will actually look like. Um, I heard an interview a couple of weeks ago with uh, Pat Anderson that talked about uh, the voice being about being able to negotiate uh, rather than make representations, which piqued my attention as well, because they are very different concepts. We're hearing now about representation uh, before policy is even developed, as well as potentially at the point of legislation. So there's no real clarity, but there are a lot of claims on how people should feel about if they vote for this proposition and what it will do. But there isn't a lot of evidence to demonstrate that uh, that is actually going to happen. And, and I like to see some more uh, information about why people on the yes side are so committed that this will be a significant trigger for change because I've always advocated for greater accountability right where responsibility actually sits and I don't think we've done enough of that. As you move round, what are people telling you about their views and in particular are the differences between people in regional areas and in urban areas and between men and women? So one of the things that has always concerned me is the fear of people even having a conversation or asking a question about the voice. And I think that goes back to how this has actually come about. Um, I think there should have been a lot more information provided. And I think the tone sometimes of the discussion around when people have actually referred to some issues they have being called chicken little. That was one example that I, I had a bit of a giggle at and I thought it might have been a bit of a play on my name. but. Um, you know, it's certainly what, what's happening now is I think people are being more confident about coming out and asking questions. There is 
you know, in the country, I'm hearing the same things as I'm hearing in the cities. People don't have detail. They believe that the Constitution is a document for everyone. And that's one of the fundamental principles for me. I'm really disappointed that the two provisions in there that relate to race uh, have actually not been removed as part of this attention to the Constitution. They will remain. Remote people don't understand this. I've heard directly from people who are Pitjantjara, Yungajara people uh, in Central Australia who have said, you know, we, we don't know what this is all about and we are very upset that we are being misrepresented as if if you come from that area around Uluru, you must have agreed to this proposition. And it's simply not true. There are alternate views. Well, on this question of recognition, the Liberals have said they support Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. Would you like to see a referendum just on that point under a Dutton government? I am convinced that if that was the proposition, which has been the proposition from the very beginning, uh, recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution, that it would be passed overwhelmingly. In fact, I think that when you look at the the 92.77% that was achieved in, in 1967, I think we would blitz that if it was that single question and the voice was actually legislated. Some mechanism for people engaging is actually legislated. But I also think it's very important that recognition of the need to engage is actually focused on rural, remote and regional communities because their ability to engage in these discussions, their ability to talk and uh, directly to people who have influence, accountability and responsibility for improving their lives, uh, I think that that's important that they are prioritised. So would you like to see a Dutton government take that referendum? I, I would like to see this Prime Minister stop this divisive uh, form and approach that he's taken to this and actually go back and say, constitutional recognition, tick, we can all do this. Because if this is defeated, the concept of constitutional recognition uh, may not ever occur. And that is a disappointment. But that is a direct result of the way this Prime Minister has gone with a no compromise position as pushed by the proponents of the, of the yes vote. And it's an all or nothing proposition with no compromise. We heard that really clearly in the committee discussions, and that was really disappointing. There was only one recommendation as a result of that inquiry that was done by the Senate, and that was that the proposition be passed unamended. But what about the future? Well, I believe that, you know, the the idea about constitutional recognition, yes, sure, it's symbolic, but it's also important. It's, I, you know, I think it's important the form of words that are actually used that recognise and embed the incredible contribution that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have made, not just to uh, this country over millennia, but also to what we enjoy today, the landscape, the native flora and fauna. Those things are incredible and make us unique. They've been a direct consequence of careful management of country, of careful management of culture and community and leadership over very many, many, many years. And I would like to see that recognised. But the current proposition that's in front of us at the moment now, it does nothing about that, but there also has to be something very practical, which is about accountability. What that looks like, uh, I'm sure that that could be improved. I've come from outside. I've seen ways already. I, I'm in Alice Springs at the moment, and I see constantly ways that these things can be improved uh, by somebody being accountable for recognising that across the service delivery supply chain, the most vulnerable people need those services and they need accountability right from the level of politicians at the federal level 
as you know, you've been a, a, around in this area for a, a long time, money from the Commonwealth for some programs goes directly to the states, particularly in those areas that the minister herself came out and said were she would like priorities for The Voice, forgetting the fact that The Voice actually uh, there's no requirement that it be prioritised because they can talk about pretty much anything they, they would wish to talk about. So I think it's important that we keep going back to accountability. Um, accountability is the most important thing and right across the supply chain from politicians to program makers to program providers, asking their customers and clients, is my service delivering? Actually asking for independent evaluation. There's nowhere near enough of that. We saw a recent ANA report come out about the minister's own department that administers more than a thousand programs to external providers that actually talks about its audit and risk management not being up to the standard that it should be. Well, what about performance of those programs as well? What about evaluation, not just evaluation of those programs independently, but also peer evaluation of the programs and linked to how do you actually run a program that actually links to something else um, that somebody else provides that they're experts in? It's just such a fractured service delivery process for the most vulnerable people who are the least powerful to complain about that system. And unless you understand about significant systems and how they're integrated and who's responsible for what and are actually prepared to understand that, dismantle where it needs to be dismantled because it's not working and be brave enough to do that, then you're not going to see change. But actually the language that's being used in this voice proposition that suggests that this is going to be um, an incredible transformational process, quite frankly, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't buy it. I don't see how it's going to work. I haven't had that confirmed by the Prime Minister or the Minister. And there's just so much creep. It seems like they're just making this, this up as it goes along. This isn't a simple proposition. This is asking us to amend the Constitution to put in place a voice, and they haven't explained that sufficiently. Thank you to Karen Little. And that's all from today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon. In the meantime, goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevear. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.